encouragement you give to us through your word. I pray that you will minister to us uh, today as we look at the commands you've given us and the comforts you've given us. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Super Bowl is fast upon us. I don't know how many of you are into it. Yes, Levisa 49. Okay. Anyway, so I have um, some things about church and football, just kind of a comparison. Quarterback sneak, that's church members quietly leaving during the invitation. Um, draw play, what many children do with the bulletin during worship. Halftime, the period between Sunday school and worship when many choose to leave. Bench warmer, those who do not sing, pray, work, or apparently do anything but sit. Um, backfield in motion, this is very popular in church. Uh, making a trip to the bathroom, the restroom, or whatever during the service. And this is... This you know, there's this continual motion. Oops, this is my earring. Sorry. Okay, let me see where I am. Staying in the pocket, what happens to a lot of money? That should be given to the Lord's work. <laughs> That's a good one. Two-minute warning. Oh, you know this one. <clears throat> the point at which you realize the sermon is almost over because everybody's starting to close their Bibles, get their kids ready to leave. Um, sudden death, what happens to the attention span of the congregation if the preacher goes over time? <laughs> <laughs> oh, trap, yeah, you're called to pray and you're asleep. <clears throat> That's the end run, getting out of church quickly without speaking to any guest or fellow member. Flex defense, the ability to allow, to allow absolutely nothing said during the sermon to affect your life. Halfback option, the decision of 50% of the congregation not to return for the evening service. And then the blitz, the rush for the restaurants following the closing prayer. So a little football humor. <clears throat> well, it's been a very big gap of time since we finished our study last week in chapter 13 <clears throat> and back in December. And we left off with the betrayal of Judas uh, to Jesus and then Jesus speaking directly to Peter about the denial he would bring and carry out. So as we begin chapters 14 through 16, the focus starts out with being on comfort. <clears throat> then Jesus will admonish his disciples, and finally he will predict what's to come as they bear witness to, of him in the future. The disciples are confused, they're perplexed, and they're greatly troubled. And their emotions cause them to be sad as they tried to grasp that Jesus was to leave them, and they could not follow him at this time. What's especially meaningful is that this is the night before Jesus is being crucified. And he's going to bear the weight of sin for all who would believe. He was facing complete abandonment and separation of the Father. And yet here his thoughts are love and concern for his disciples. Jesus himself was troubled in spirit, chapter 13 says. And yet his love caused him to comfort his men as he was so they would soon experience the reality of him being away from them. So Jesus brings comfort in numerous ways. The first one, he says, you need to trust in me. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. The thought is, do not let your heart be troubled any longer. Clearly, it is troubled. So I'm telling you to stop having your heart be troubled. Jesus completely understood their fears and concerns. And though they were unaware of his pain, uh, he felt their pain and he comforted them. Jesus is consoling his disciples when he himself, as I said, is about to face the cross. And he tells them that just as they believe in God, they are to believe him. They are to trust him. 
These verses apply to us as well because life on this earth in a broken world is full of troubles and disappointments and hard circumstances and on and on and on goes the troubles. But what Jesus is saying to his disciples back then in that room, he is saying to each of us here in this room the same thing. It is a command to not let your heart be troubled any longer. The next command he gives is to believe also in him. Jesus is deity. He is equal to God the Father, and therefore he must be trusted. He must be believed. They needed to believe that Jesus knew exactly what he was doing, that his going away and leaving them had a purpose, and that he wasn't abandoning them. Keep on trusting God and keep on trusting Jesus. At this point, Jesus doesn't fully explain why he must die on the cross, but here he demands that they trust him and they rest in him, even when they don't understand what is going on and what he's doing. Within hours, Jesus would die, be buried, and clearly their faith was going to be greatly challenged at that point. The only remedy for a troubled heart is confidence and trust that Jesus is who he says he is. He truly is a savior for sinners. He's made that possible because he suffered and died. The same truth and command is for each of us here sitting in this room. He says to us, don't continue to be troubled. Keep on trusting God. Keep on trusting me. Jesus asks his disciples to continue to rest in him with their entire being. His great love and care for his own ought to cause all of us to cast our cares on him. Clearly, it is a command we're told to do. Then he goes on to say, you can trust me for your future. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go and prepare a place for you. So again, Jesus brings comfort here by telling them that their separation from him is just going to be temporary. And even though he was going away, he was going to prepare a place for them and they will all be reunited one day in glory. What a comfort to know that there's going to be a reunion in the place he was going. In reality, it is his death on the cross and his ascension to heaven that will make possible the Holy Spirit being sent that makes possible this reunion to happen in the first place. What appears to them then is complete calamity is about to happen. But in reality, it was a huge blessing. And the only reason there is a place with him in heaven is because he was leaving them. Time and again, as you study scriptures, you see that God is doing much grander, bigger things than we can grasp in the moment. The Father's house is in heaven, also called in scripture a city, a county, a country rather, a county, Pinellas, a county, a country rather, a kingdom, paradise, a place of rest. In the Father's house, there are entire dwelling places, permanent homes for all of God's children. It is beautiful, it's completely furnished, and it's spacious. The picture is that of the Father building additional rooms onto the house for his children. If you get a chance to read Revelation 21, 9 through 27, it is a description giving stunning beauty to the place we will ultimately live for eternity. Amazing. Without the death of Jesus, there would be no place for his followers. It is only by faith in Jesus that we can be at the place that he is making ready for us. Verse 3 says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself 
that where I am, there you will be also. The followers of Jesus alive at the rapture of the church, we know are going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air after the dead in Christ rise when the trumpet calls, 1 Corinthians 15, 51, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. At the second coming of Christ, that's with his holy angels and his bride as he returns to earth at the end of the tribulation. So it seems Jesus seems to be referring here to the rapture of the church. Notice he doesn't say, I come again and I will take you to that place I'm preparing. No, he says, I will take you to myself. It's not just about being, meeting him in heaven. It's about being taken home to his embrace there. So for those of us who know him by faith, heaven is our home. It's where we belong. And these verses then are not limited to comfort at a graveside or a funeral. These are verses to bring us comfort as we walk through life here on this very challenging planet Earth. You always have hope and you always have his comfort if you know him. I mean, just think of all he has prepared to make possible salvation and how he's preparing a place for your future. So you certainly can trust him for what he's doing in your life today. And then he brings comfort, he says, because of who Jesus is. And you know the way where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So this is the seventh I am in the Gospel of John. Jesus is saying to his disciples that you know me and I am the way. The way to the Father is through Jesus. Thomas seems to be the spokesman for all of them when he says, well, we don't know where you're going and we don't know how to get there. Jesus had certainly taught them uh, that he was the way to the Father throughout his ministry. Clearly, they were at a loss for understanding. They didn't seem to know where Jesus was going and they didn't seem to know that, how to follow him there. So Jesus speaks the most profound truth when he says he alone is the way the, to God because he alone is God and he alone is the truth about God and he alone possesses the life of God. Just as Jesus said he alone was the door to the sheep, the only way of salvation for any person to come to God is a very narrow road indeed. And you know, this is such a stumbling block for so many people because all these people can't be wrong in going to hell. They love their God. They're sincere about their God. But this is what Jesus declared, the only way. There is salvation and no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved, Acts 4.12. So faith in the person of Jesus is the only way to have access to the Father. Everyone born in this world is born estranged from God. He is a personal God, and fellowship with him can only be possible if you're in union with Jesus. Jesus is the way from God to man, and he is the way from man to God. He is the living truth that sanctifies and guides us and sets us free. He is the source of life. He is the giver of life. He alone has the words of life. He alone gives abundant life. He is the way because he is the truth and the life. And then he brings comfort in relying, reminding them again to rely on him, the person of Christ. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. And Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father. That's enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? 
He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? You can just see Jesus shaking his head. Oh, my. (sighs) Knowing Jesus is the same thing as knowing the Father. Jesus makes it abundantly clear he is God. Jesus asked Philip, do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Perhaps Philip was hoping to see the Father in some type of manifestation of his glory, like what Moses got to experience. He didn't seem to grasp that a far greater privilege than what Moses had while on earth had been given to him, spending three years with Jesus. They needed to see by faith the Father is in the Son, and every work and every word that Jesus did is the work and the word of the Father. Jesus had poured his life into these men for three years, yet they do not seem to grasp the truth about his union with the Father. So Jesus makes it clear that the works that he did testify that's the Father who sent him. Jesus also brings comfort to his men when he tells them in verse 12 that they will do greater works than they could ever imagine because he was going to the Father. This isn't speaking of individuals having greater power than Jesus had but rather greater in extent of outreach. It wasn't going to be limited to Jerusalem and, and uh, Israel. It's going to go far beyond. The miracle of salvation would change the world as the gospel was proclaimed far beyond those borders. It's only when Jesus would go to the Father that the Holy Spirit would then be sent to indwell believers and then give them the power to be able to do ministry for him. And that brings us to another great comfort. That is the privilege of prayer. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. As Jesus continues to bring comfort to his man, he now speaks of the power and the provision of prayer. When needs arise, prayer would be the means for Jesus to meet their needs for that provision. We are told to ask in Jesus' name, And as you well know, that does not mean that you tack on to every prayer that you say in Jesus' name, amen. It means that you're asking the Lord in prayer for something consistent with his will, consistent with his purposes. It reminds us of the truth that we have no self-sufficiency to receive anything from the Lord on our own merits. Rather, our prayers are to be based on what Jesus has done and on his merits alone. Praying in Jesus' name also means that this request is for his glory. And that's your focus. It's not, it's how he would pray if he were here. It's all about his purposes, how he's going to be glorified in this situation. Jesus is giving ongoing hope that he can be trusted to meet the needs of his own. So we're sitting in this room thousands of years after Jesus spoke these same words to his men. But his message is just as relevant for us today as when he gave it. We have from his spirit the assurance that he is with us, that he is preparing a place for us in heaven, that he is the only way to be in a right relationship with God, that he will sustain us with his power, that he will fulfill every promise he has made to us. He is an endless source of hope and comfort as we walk through a very broken world. So we don't have to live our lives with troubled hearts. We must listen to Jesus' command, do not let your heart be troubled. Instead, believe him and his promises. So if you struggle with unanswered prayer, I think that's always a good time to evaluate and examine your request to see if it lines up 
with how Christ would pray. Often it is in that period of waiting and unanswered prayer that the Lord reveals sometimes our true motives that need to get changed. Or his silence often is to grow us to have a greater trust in him when the answer doesn't come when or how we thought. Clearly, our obedience to him is also a key regarding our prayer life. Jesus said in verse 15 that if you love me, you will keep my commandments. The psalmist reminds us that if we regard iniquity in our hearts, he will not hear us. The evidence that we know and love Jesus is a life that is characterized by obedience. Clearly not perfection, but a life that fights the flesh every day, every moment of the day, and seeks to honor the Lord by obeying his word. That is the total focus of our life. Then there's comfort from the promise of the Spirit. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, and he may, that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot rec- receive, because it does not see him or know him. But you know him, because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Although Jesus was soon to be gone and not able to be seen by them anymore, he was going to make sure they're not left alone. He promised them by way of application, he promises each one who knows him the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Jesus promises to ask the Father to send another helper, the one who's called alongside of us. He is an encourager. He is a comforter. He is a counselor. He's the one who intercedes for us when we don't even know how to pray. He's the one who exhorts us. He's the one who convicts us of sin. The Spirit is another helper just like Jesus. And though Jesus was soon to lead them, he promised that the Holy Spirit would be with them forever. The Spirit is called by Jesus uh, the Spirit of truth because he reveals spiritual truth to his own The world does not know or recognize the Spirit, but He will indwell and abide in every believer who comes to Him by faith for salvation. In the Old Testament, the Spirit was with believers, and in the New Testament era is the time Jesus promised that every disciple would be permanently indwelled by the Holy Spirit, who will empower us to do ministry for Him. Jesus continues to bring comfort by stating that he would not leave them as orphans in this world. After his death, he promises to come to them. These same disciples would soon be a witness of his resurrection. And that reality proves that they too will be resurrected one day because Jesus proved he has power over death. The Holy Spirit, the helper from the Father, will send to them. The the Father will send to them. He will teach the disciples all things and bring to remembrance all the things that Jesus taught them. And thus we have the inspired word of God. And thus we're studying the gospel of John because the Holy Spirit brought to John's mind all the things that Jesus taught him while they were together. Then we have comfort from his peace in our hearts. Jesus said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Do not let your heart be troubled nor let it be fearful. So the peace that Jesus leaves with his own is a treasure from him. It's a legacy. It's what he gives to his own. And the only way there can be peace between us and God is clearly if we've trusted him for our salvation. The death of Christ is a sufficient payment for the debt of sin that we each have. He was punished in the place of all who would believe as though he were the sinner, 
And then he did this so that all those who come to him by faith are treated as if they were the perfectly righteous ones like Jesus. Once enemies of God, we can become his friends, his children, based on the atonement of Jesus on our behalf. That is what brings us peace with God. That is how we are justified, declared righteous, and have peace with him. No longer his enemy. Besides being at peace with God, that happens the moment we put our faith in Jesus alone to save us. There is clearly the peace of God. That is to guard our hearts and minds. It's supposed to be like a soldier, you know, guarding our minds so we don't fall into those deep pits of dark despair. Um, Philippians 4, 7 makes it clear. Set your mind (laughs) on the things that are true and think on the things that are true. Peace is also a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peace, Jesus said, because Jesus is the God of peace, he says, I give my peace to you. Peace comes from all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and the Spirit. The Holy Spirit has the ministry of giving peace to believers. This very same peace that kept Jesus calm when he faced scorn and hatred and betrayal and death and torture on the cross is the peace he gives to his own. Clearly, his circumstances were horrific, and yet he had peace because he knew he was doing the Father's will. I think we all recognize that the world offers no peace at all. They have moments that they call peace. It's a vacation, and that doesn't always go well. (laughs) For some people, it's substance. For some people, it's a romance or just the thrill of buying something else again. Very moments, brief moments of a good feeling. And they may talk about peace, and people may sign, countries may sign peace treaties, but it's an illusion and it's a temporary escape. Only those who know Jesus can have peace with God and only those who know him can experience the peace of God in the midst of turbulent life on earth. Again, at the end of verse 27, Jesus tells his disciples, do not let your heart be troubled or fearful. Again, he commands his followers. We are responsible then, ladies, to believe his promises, to seek and pursue peace. <clears throat> Those who love his word have his peace. Psalm 119, 165 says, God is the one who fills us with joy and peace in believing. So if we live in anxiety over what has happened in the past, over what might happen in the future, then we simply fail to believe who he is what he's told us to do, and we're disobeying him. Philippians 4, 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God will surpass all understanding and will guard your heart and mind. So we forfeit that peace when we choose to disobey his word. No, I'm going to worry. I'm going to be filled with anxiety. And it's sin. It's a failure to think about what else Jesus said in Matthew 6. He cares about little birds that die. And if he cares that about them, how much more he cares for his children and their every need. So if we struggle, whether it's worry about the future or guilty conscience from our past, all these things seek to destroy your peace. But repentance over sin, sins that Christ has already forgiven on the cross, that brings us back to a place of peace that he has given each of his children. So my prayer for each one of us is that studying this chapter brings us to our senses when we're tempted to be filled with anxiety. We are commanded. It's not a suggestion. You know, you really shouldn't let your heart be troubled. No. He says, do not let your heart be troubled. This is not our home. He's preparing our home for us in the future. 
He's given us the indwelling Holy Spirit to guide us, to teach us, to convict us, to comfort us. He has blessed us with every powerful resource in prayer. He is the way, the truth, and the life. He is the author of peace. So will you listen to his words? He's telling you, do not let your heart be troubled. So whatever it is that might be weighing you down, you need to leave it in his capable hands. I don't, it's so tempting to think of John 14 as just something at a funeral or a graveside, but it's for us to do life today. Well, you can't cover two chapters in 30 minutes. We all know this. We have a short amount of time. I'm just going to touch on chapter 15. Jesus continues his instruction and encouragement to his disciples by telling them that we must abide in him. The father is the vine dresser. Jesus is the vine and the only source of life. We are the branches and we are required to abide in him. This means to keep up to date in fellowship with him, confessing your sins so that your life, you live for him. You're producing fruit for him. You're connected to the vine. As the vine dresser, the father has to prune branches. That sounds painful. (laughs) And it is, (laughs) but it's for the ultimate good of the branch. No branch or believer can bear fruit unless it abides in the vine. And Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. So there will be fruit in the life of anyone who's attached to the vine. Those who bear no fruit are not attached to the vine. They're thrown away and cast into the fire. Next to chapter 15, Jesus talks about the importance of the followers of Jesus having love for one another. It is only those who abide in the vine who have the capacity to love the unlovely. The standard as to how we're to love other people has been set for us by Jesus. And how does he love us? Uh, Well, clearly sacrificially, clearly forgiving. He loves with devotion to meet the needs. And that is how we're to love other people. When we love as Jesus loves, Jesus said the world's going to take notice of that. They'll know, you know, there's something different. Jesus finishes chapter 15 by telling his disciples and us that the world is going to hate you. Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. And we all know this. Satan hates God. And Satan hates anyone who loves God. And they become his target that he seeks to destroy and keeps them just uh, not functioning as they ought to function. And whether it's using anxiety or fear or any of those things, his goal is to destroy us. And even the very first murderer, think about Cain, who killed his brother. And it says, because... His deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That was his motive for killing his brother. His his righteous deeds. So why are we surprised at the world who can't stand that we would say what is truth, what is biblical, you know, and stand by that? They, they They can't stand that. Hate it. They hate believers because they do not know God, though they would claim otherwise. They love their God. They serve their God but it's not the God of the Bible. Jesus wanted his followers to understand that this world system hates Jesus and hates his followers. But when the helper comes, he will testify about Jesus and so will his followers. He is instructing his disciples in these last hours before his death and he wants them to have peace. He wants them to have hope. 
He wants them to have comfort and strength and to be aware that difficulties will come. But they will never be alone. The spirit, the helper will come and give them all that they need to carry on life in this earth. Then there will be that grand reunion as Jesus takes them to himself. So ladies, this is our time in history. This is our little slot in the timeline of eternity. And we need to bear fruit for Jesus. So we need to take heed to his instructions. So what will you do with your troubled thoughts? Will you trust him? Will you believe him? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you for hope. Thank you for comfort. I thank you for who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you instructed your men, but in doing so, you were instructing everyone who would ever embrace you as Savior. So I pray that you would help us to apply what you have said, that we would grow in our walk, in our faith, and in our trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.